Listening Dog Media. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I should point out it's been quite an intimate experience, hasn't it? Because yeah. we're sharing one mic in your home studio yeah. here. So I'm virtually on your knee. How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. I really can't fake it, Chris. It's about sharing the music and connecting with the audience. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. I've always wanted to stand out from the crowd. Music and industry actually are two separate words. It's really important for music fans to be behind the mic. How to DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. I just put something on that I think will warm the crowd to me and then I see how far I can push them. And here with me, in his own home studio in Bolton, it's a Northern Soul pioneer. People were so happy, I never saw any fights. I mean, if we'd had beer on, it would never have worked. One of Wigan Casino's best-loved DJs. The clapping and the excitement, you wouldn't necessarily hear that now. The interaction with the crowd. And the recipient of the British Empire Medal for Services to Soul Music. When you know that people appreciate what you do for them and create something for them, I I was lucky enough to get that medal. Never, never try to be anyone other than yourself. You've got to have your heroes and you've got to have your mentors, but you've got to have at least a a sizable percentage of you in there as well to stand out from the crowd. He is Richard Surley. Welcome to Bolton. Welcome to my home studio. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is awesome. This is a studio at the bottom of your garden. I had this built some time ago, but I've been using it more than ever. Obviously, during lockdown, it's been great. Do you still <laughs> DJ from Vine? Uh, yeah, I do. I, in fact, even here, when I do my uh, my weekly shows for a radio station, it's all vinyl. It just inspires me. When does it take you back to? Do you remember your first time? I used to be a Saturday lad, and there was a shop in Manchester on Todd Street called Ralph's Records, just near where Victoria Station is. And that was the haunt of all the mobile DJs, all the soul DJs, and the record company reps, because it was quite close to Shude Hill, which is where they go and dump all their promos on a Saturday morning. So I was in there on a Saturday, got to know a lot of people, and one lad, I guess he was an agent, said, do you fancy doing the Sogat Club in Salford? Two pounds. And um, I remember playing the Elgins, Heaven Must Have Sent You. I'd just got a few records and then nothing happened for the next three years until whilst being a collector and going to really important venues like Blackpool Mecca, which was a weekly tradition. Everybody from the north went on the free coaches. We listened to DJs there like Tony Jeb. We heard fantastic records. I ended up building a collection 
mainly through junk shops, going through Moss Side, looking for odds and sods. And I went to a club called The Pendulum in Manchester, ironically, just round the corner from Ralph's. And the lad there said, do you fancy going to America looking for records? Well, my parents won't like it very much, but I can't say no to that. He said, well, I work at Global Records. Now, Global Records were the very first company to import records from America. So they would get their knowledgeable warehouseman, £17 a week, to work in the warehouse for 45 weeks of the year. But the other seven weeks, you got to go to Philadelphia, to the main warehouse, and go and do some spying missions around some other places. I wrote about it all in my book, actually, in great detail. Anyway, cut a long story short, I took the job. My parents were horrified, and I went to work for Global. They sent me to America, and before I knew it, I was in a huge warehouse called the House of Sounds in Camden, Philadelphia, confronted with, I I can't even describe it to you, imagine a cotton mill in Oldham, four stories high, but not cotton mills, just pallet after pallet after pallet of deletions on Chess, Mercury, Phillips. And I was just left there from nine in the morning till six at night to dig through records, find records, get them on a pallet, get them up and get them back to England. So I built a collection that way. But how are you choosing them? Well, that's a very good question as well, because my knowledge wasn't great. So I'd go armed with what you call a wants list. So there'd be a guy, I'll use the name Simon Susan because he was a big player then. He'd have sent a wants list to Global. I need the following records on MGM, OK, ABC. But it's an interesting point you make, Chris, because yes, I got the records, a lot of them that were on those wants lists. But how many did I leave that I didn't realise that are now worth a fortune? And it doesn't haunt me. But I wonder, and one of the weirdest things there was, there's a competitive edge between all DJs, in particular Northern Soul. I played it first. I discovered that. On the last day of one of the trips, the owner of Global Records said, have I ever taken you up to the second floor? I said, no, didn't know there was a second floor with records on. So up we went, and I found some really nice things up there. But in one of the boxes, I found a record that was snapped in two that was a real hot favourite. I'd just got some razor blades and sellotape and put it back together again and played it in my gigs. The, the lad said, oh, yeah, um, there were two copies. I brought one, I snapped the other one, I wanted the only copy. And that just sort of really summed up those early days. Yeah. Uh, the weird thing is, I think, that they were rare. Am I right in saying they were rare? Because actually they'd mostly been dropped, the artists. Yeah, the major label got into R&B and soul music as the disco boom and the Motown boom hit, both in 1965. And they would get these artists signed up, get these records out. They didn't get airplay and didn't get much promotion. And they were deleted very, very quickly. Two tracks would come out, another two would sit in the can. If the single didn't sell, the artist got dropped and the other two tracks lay dormant for years and years and years till the advent of CD. So were you a soul DJ or a northern soul well, DJ? Well, at the time I was a collector of soul music, but I had a, an understanding and a love of northern soul, uplifting, up-tempo, magical music. When you went into a place like Blackpool Mecca, you heard something different every Saturday night and you couldn't believe these records hadn't made Top of the Pops. They were that good. Where did the name come from, Northern Soul? Northern Soul first came into parlance reputedly in June 1970. A journalist from Blues and Soul magazine called Dave Godin, the Pied Piper of soul music, his column was the only way we could find out anything about the venues, the records, the artists and the scene. He could actually put into words exactly what made these records special. He, he said something to a friend of mine recently. There's a, a very popular record by an artist called Gene Plum 
which came out in 1975 called Look at the Boy. And my friend went to Dave and said, have you heard this other record by her? It's fantastic. Dave listened to it, looked at him and said, you see, lightning doesn't strike twice. Mm. In other words, the magic wasn't there. He was a brilliant man. And he came up with Northern Soul because he worked at a record shop in London called Soul City. And I think they were getting frustrated with lads coming down to London at a weekend, maybe going to watch United or City or whatever, and saying, have you got any fast up-tempo records that sound like Motown? And somebody had the bright idea of getting these together in one particular box or two boxes, and Dave, on the side of the box, wrote Northern Soul. Why were they one-hit wonders, so many of these acts? Well, so many great records came out in the 60s anyway. A lot of the records in particular on the major labels, RCA, Columbia, just didn't get the airplay or distribution. And it was only a label like Berry Gordy's Motown, where he could see everything from the artist writing the song to it being recorded in his own studios, his own pressing plant. He he was in total control. He could he had the contacts at the radio station. So he would see a project that Smokey Robinson had written from start to finish and see it be a number one smash on the R and B charts in Philadelphia. Jerry Ross wanted to be another Motown, but he was just one cog in a huge corporate wheel. Motown wasn't corporate like that, and Stax wasn't either. And Atlantic as well had more of a a little label, an independent view of the music business. But when you got to the bigger labels, you were just a really small cog in a wheel. How aware were those labels of what was happening in the UK? Well, the UK was very much an underground scene, I have to say that. And let's say Northern Soul, although it wasn't called that then, started at the Twisted Wheel in Manchester in 1965. That's when the music moved away from R&B and blues and became more uplifting, more accessible to teenagers. And the thing with the wheel was it played records that you wouldn't hear on the radio. I mean, we look back now at all these fantastic records and think, oh, yeah, brilliant. We love Marvin Gaye. We love the Marvelettes. We love Smokey Robinson. They didn't get played on the radio over here because the BBC in particular, were working to a mantra to support British artists. And if you think about that, it's quite logical that that would be the case. Yeah. So the records got released here. They were out of print in weeks. Clubs like The Wheel, the DJs there, had bought them as new releases or managed to get them knowing they were going to go out of print. And you ended up with this fanatical religious type following to go to venues like The Wheel because you'd hear records that you wouldn't hear on the radio, you wouldn't hear them in the run-of-the-mill nightclubs. And that's how Northern Soul got started with UK release. These records did get released here. They're exceptionally collectible now because they didn't get the publicity at the time. By the time we got to 1970, we had got Blackpool Mecca playing this rare import soul, which wasn't then called Northern Soul. So that's really when Northern Soul became a thing. And from that, other clubs like the Golden Torch in Stoke and, of course, Wigan Casino followed in the footsteps. But all in the north? North and Midlands. I think we have to say Tunstall's probably nearer Midlands. The furthest south? Two venues, I'll be shot if I don't mention them, the Catacombs in Wolverhampton. As the name would suggest, it was a warren of tunnels. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face, but amazing atmosphere. And a place, bizarrely, in Worcestershire called the Chateau Impney at Droitwich was a huge, wonderful building where they did Sunday afternoon Northern Soul and people would go there after the Twisted Wheel. So from small beginnings it then started to get more popularised in the early 1970s. 
culminating with this England paying a visit to Wigan Casino in 1976, which we all threw our hands up in horror and said, no, 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 we don't want the lights on, we don't want the cameras. Thank goodness they did it, though, because nobody would have believed it otherwise. It's the only genuine footage we've got. Did you play all of those clubs that you've mentioned? I didn't play the Twisted Wheel. I was, I say, too young. That's a bit of an exaggeration. But the first place I played would have been Varvars in Bolton, which brings us back to the global record story I was telling you, where having amassed a small collection by two or three trips to Philadelphia, I took a phone call one day in the office from a lad saying... They're looking for a DJ for a new Northern Soul all-nighter in uh, Bolton. Are you interested? I jumped at the chance. It opened at one in the morning, went on till eight. And the weird thing about that was, if you turn your mind back to 1973, David Bowie and Roxy music were really the big thing. And it was a Roxy Bowie night that led straight into my all-nighter. So as one lot were being kicked out at one, I was going in there with the Northern Soul records. And that lasted for about five months. What was the licensing around somewhere that started at one? It was very, very strict. I don't think they could do Saturday into Sunday because in Bolton they wouldn't allow it. And eventually the demise of the club after about four months was because of the drug squad, because recreational drugs were rife. But people were so happy. I never saw any fights. I mean, if we'd had beer on, it would never have worked at any of these venues. But the drug squad didn't see it that way. They closed Varvars down in July 1973. Your name is most synonymous of all the clubs that you've mentioned with Wigan Casino and I'd love your version of what that venue was like and why it became such a Northern Soul mecca, Richard. Well, Wigan Casino really was just the most perfect place for a Northern Soul all-nighter. Right off the M6 motorway, massive dance floor, huge balcony, held 2,000. It had everything going for it. They decided they would start all-nighters there, 23rd of September, 1973, members only. 600 people attended. It was a very good night. I think I was there on the second or third night. Very impressed with it. And I didn't ask to go on there, but I was recommended by one of the other DJs, a guy called Kev Roberts, said, there's this bloke at Bolton that's been doing some decent numbers. So I was auditioned in the October of 1973 and then... From January 1974, I was there as one of the resident DJs right the way through to, my goodness, I can't even remember the date, September the 6th, 1981. Do you remember your audition? I do. I remember I had a few records. This is back to the one-upmanship and I've got it, you haven't, and I discovered it. I had Tainted Love by Gloria Jones, Laws of Love by The Volcanoes, Easy Baby by The Adventurers. They were three records that were my signature tunes at Varvars, so I knew... There's a good chance if they went down at Varvars, they'll go down here as well. And the other DJs ain't got them. To be a DJ, there's no point just being a mimic of other people that have gone before you. Not if you want to be successful. You've got to stand out on your own somehow, either with a wonderful magnetic personality that people can't fail to love or a record collection that means you've got plenty of exclusives they can't hear anywhere else. What are your best memories? Well, any of the anniversaries would be fantastic memories because they were absolutely packed to the doors. You're looking at 2,000 people there. There were great nights there, of course. Betty Wright appeared there. Betty Wright? She's not a Northern Soulite. Well, she'd been on in Manchester somewhere. Mike Walker got a book for Wigan. and she blew the place apart. A band, probably Casey and the Sunshine Band behind her. They were outstanding. Jackie Wilson's last ever UK performance was there as well. James Brown evidently turned up there for an all-dayer. When you were on? Well, we were all waiting. It was going to be a James Brown show at night and he drove off again, or his coach did. Now, we can make all sorts of assumptions here. Maybe he wanted the money up front and didn't get... 
I don't know. But I think the night still went ahead. And it seems like a dream now. Edwin Starr. Edwin Starr. Loved the UK and the UK loved Edwin Starr. A guy that's never, ever done a bad show. And when we worked together at RCA, he was doing well with Happy Radio and Contact. Do you ever meet people in your life when you wish you'd spoken to them more? Edwin spoke to me about Motown and Detroit, 1968, when Motown bought out his Rick Tick label, or he recorded for Rick Tick. And he said to me, you know, Richard, he said, they were so disrespectful. There were people sending master tapes down the road, kids, mm. unreleased masters. And I always think, I wish he'd spoken more about that. I would have been about, I guess, 17, 18. And uh, I saw that Edwin Starr was playing a, a new venue in Shrewsbury, where I grew up. And there were no tickets there. It was completely sold out. So I pleaded with the bar to give me a job. And I've got no experience ever working behind a bar and never pulled a pint in my life. But I got the job for one night just so that I could see Edwin Starr. And I, and I still haven't pulled a pint. I never pulled one that <laughs> night because I just stood and watched Edwin Starr in absolute awe. Oh. Time to dip into the box. Oh, all right. Yeah. Okay, so I've got a box here of 45 45s mm. and each has a question on. Okay, so I'd like you to pull out the first of those. Thank you, Richard. Okay. This first one. Complete this line. Never, never. Interesting one, this. Never, never try to be anyone other than yourself. To succeed as a DJ, you must create your own identity. And that's a lot harder than it sounds, I think. It takes a while. It takes experience, doesn't it? I think it's a state of mind as well, though. I think there are DJs that want to be stars that will then just think, well, what's everybody else doing? And I think that's a fatal mistake for a DJ. DJs I've worked with over the years that I've respected have absolutely not wanted to do what Richard Serling does. I think of a guy called Dean Johnson, rest in peace, at Parker's in Manchester. He put records on. I think that's never going to work. And it did. And he soon established himself as a direct link. When you hear that record today, people say, I think of Dean. And that's what I'd like them to say about me. That reminds me of Richard at such and such a place. I know it's not easy when you first start out. You've got to have your heroes and you've got to have your mentors, but you've got to have at least a sizable percentage of you in there as well to stand out from the crowd. And it can just be the way that you put the music across. It doesn't have to be what's in the grooves, although if you can do both, that helps. That's about the way you play them, isn't it? What's the best way? Well, if it's a Northern Soul gig, I don't use the mic too much. You've got to make that judgment. If you've got something to say, make sure that it's brief and that it's of interest and it's not waffle. On the radio, completely different. There's so many options on the radio now that you've got to be able to somehow hold the listener by the hand and bring them with you through your experiences to get them to be loyal to you. I'm really interested in what you said earlier about wanting to be the one that plays new stuff and that people really wanted that from what you remember. People loved the fact that they were hearing new stuff mm. for the first time. Mm. Ordinarily, it would be familiarity that people want most. It would. In a normal nightclub situation, absolutely. They're not there to be educated, but that wasn't the case with the Northern Soul crowd. They were there for the music. They weren't there to, I hate the expression, cop off. They weren't there to have a few pints. They were dedicated and still are dedicated. Now, today's Northern Soul scene actually has turned in on itself. 
there's still there for the music, 100%, but it's more memories and it's a bit more social. A lot of the good stuff has been discovered. You don't want to start dropping the quality down by playing things that didn't get played the first time around because they weren't good enough then and they sure as hell ain't good enough now. Do you think there's still more to be discovered? There's always more to be discovered and certainly if the northern scene can evolve, as it has to an extent, back end of the Wigan Casino, 78, 79, we were playing records which would have horrified people in 1974 and I'll use Phyllis Hyman you know how to love me as a good example but new discoveries today are harder to find they're still being found some of them come from the vaults of labels like Motown where so many records were recorded they just couldn't physically release them all and of course it's always the way you put yourself in the situation and think how did that get rejected on the Monday morning A&R meeting why did they not put that Isley Brothers record out? It's wonderful. Look at the dance floor here at the Blackpool Tower. Of course, it's not like that at all because it's in context, isn't it? That record back in 1967 didn't sound right. You know, so much of what you say reminds me of uh, a previous guest on the podcast, Graham Park, talking about the Hacienda and the house scene and rave. I think there are real similarities between the two scenes. There are. I mean, I'll defend Northern Soul. Rave to me feels like more of an ethereal experience where they're all dancing to the same beat and drinking lots of water. And I'm sure I'm missing a lot of things by saying that. My terminology for Northern Soul is the music that loves us back because I believe it does. I believe it's the music of life. I believe it's lyrics we can relate to, uplifting melodies. With rave, dance music, I'm hearing more of a formula being espoused and a shared experience with other people in the room, of course, and that building excitement. The shared experience is the same. I believe that Northern Soul has got more gravitas. But the journey of discovery too, the house music coming over from the States, Graham, for example, picking out tunes when he went over to America and herding clubs there and bringing them over here. I think there's a distinction that I'm drawing anyway between house music from Chicago, which came through those black clubs, and rave music, which I see more as like an 808 state type thing where it's just more of a fashion, yeah. let's stay out all night. But there's a culture similarity it, too. There definitely is a culture and there's, there's a collectability side to it as well. There's, there's no doubt about that. And a lot of DJs from the northern scene, let's not hide the fact, moved on and went straight through the modern soul era and straight into Soulful House in 1986-87. Yeah, and a, a lot of sampling went on. That's right. I mean, Dean Johnson DJed at the Hacienda as well as Parker's, but he could play equally great sets in either. And the sampling, you're right, a lot of the records from the 70s were used in samples. I probably don't know enough about it to be the right person to ask about that. But certainly there are similarities. There's no denying that. All right, let's get back in the box yes. for question two, if you would. I like this. <laughs> well, you haven't seen what the next question is yet. But, uh, no. Let's see. Okay. All right. Have you ever cleared a dance floor? This completely cleared the dance floor. The record on ABC Records by Holly St. James. It's a single that's valued now at about £3,000. I'd got the first copy from Soul Bowl in Kings Lynn. They used to supply me with a lot of really hard-to-find records. John Anderson, who we must mention, is responsible more than anybody for finding the records in America, bringing them back as complete unknowns, and then handing them out to DJs like myself. So I got the Holly St. James record. It starts off with a sort of a drum beat, and it absolutely cleared the floor. It really did. So much so as I had just to fade it right the way down and gather my thoughts, what am I going to play next? And I remember doing it one other time as well with 
a very, very soulful record by possibly my favourite singer of all time on the female side, Patty Austin. She recorded a record called You Didn't Say a Word in 1972 for Columbia. Now, there'd been a very, very big Northern Soul version of that record cut in 67 by Yvonne Baker, which had been an absolute classic. You couldn't get on the dance floor. I got the Patty Austin version. I thought, let's try something a bit different. They know the song, but it's such a different arrangement. It's a great radio record. At Wigan, you've got this huge void of a ceiling and the sound just disappeared up there. If it was a sort of a stereotype record, it didn't penetrate somehow. You put something on from 1965 that sounded like a Phil Spector, you in heaven, because it's going right the way down the room, it's shaking the walls and everybody's feeding off it. But the more sophisticated, thoughtful sort of stuff, Wigan wasn't the place for that. Tell me about the buzz on a packed out night. Mm. Can you put yourself in that moment in the early 70s? Just mm. imagine yourself back mm. there. Standing in front of those huge gold curtains, in front of the three turntable SAI decks with speakers on either side, the front of the balcony, not a space to be had, with people either sitting there or with their holdalls for the change of clothing, looking up to the balcony right to the back in a bit of light from the coffee bar at the top there, right across the heads of 1,500 people that were dancing, down to the lights at the bottom on the ground floor, which was the main bar selling Coke and water, but was also the record bar. So that was packed with collectors and traders. On the balcony, there'd be microphones hanging over the edge with people recording onto cassettes. And some of these are really good quality, by the way. The clapping and the excitement you wouldn't necessarily hear that now. The interaction with the crowd. You could put a record on with a, an intro that was very distinctive. For instance, I'll use the, the track Cecil Washington, I Don't Like to Lose, which is one of my biggest records. It's got a really sort of de -de 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 start to it. And as you were doing that, they'd be running on the floor. It was just incredible, really incredible. But you got used to it, you took it for granted. And it's only now looking back, you think, wow, that was really special, wasn't it? The dancing then, of course, more acrobatic than you'd see now. If somebody's in the 50s or 60s now, they're probably not going to do a double backstand swirl and what have you. It's more sedate now. But they were very special times at Wigan. How about that dancing in the Northern Soul film? I know that you were a consultant on that. Those two guys, unbelievable, yeah. right? Elaine Constantine's film was fantastic. Elaine was determined she was going to get the detail right. So if somebody held a record up, it had better be the original. If the strip lights were above the dance floor, they'd better be just like they were at Wigan. We saw the gold curtains, didn't we? But the dancing was incredible. And, you know, that gave the northern scene such a boost, that film. For two or three years afterwards, we saw an influx of younger people coming through. You know, the day, on the day when we played the music, it was just fantastic. It was like turning back the hands of time because you could actually play a really fast record and see these young guys dancing. I feel like I'm 21 all over again. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. So the actual technique of being a DJ, providing they can make sure there's no gaps between the music, they are welcome to the clubs now. Personally, I've tried. I'd love to be a mixer, but there's a real skill to it and you can make yourself sound like a, a real idiot if you get it wrong. Right, uh, Rich, back into the box then for question three this time. Another 45 Steve with a question on it. And this one is, what is the craft of DJing? I think there are DJs and there are, there are DJs. I think we may have mentioned already that personality DJs 
can attract an audience probably more on radio than in clubs by just being themselves. So Kenny Everett is a classic example there. When you think of Kenny Everett, you think of the man before you think of the music he might have played. Then you go to somebody like John Peel, who you think of the music maybe as much as the man. And then another of my favourites is Johnny Walker, who just by his lack of any ego, is just like you're having a conversation with him sitting around a table. You feel like he's in the room with you. Those are all things that make DJs. On the northern scene, it's really the records that they have these days. So you find yourself now going to a lot of venues where they are collectors, but they've got records that everybody wants to hear. So the actual technique of being a DJ, providing they can make sure there's no gaps between the music, they are welcome to the clubs now. But in the early days of Northern Soul, you'd got DJs like Tony Jebb at the Blackpool Mecca, you'd got Martin Ellis at the Golden Torch, who were incredible showmen as well, and would just make everybody laugh. I mean, dear Martin, I can remember him, he used to finish off at Wigan Casino, and the record he'd selected to finish the all-nighters off was Dean Parrish, I'm On My Way, which is a perfect record to send yeah. people home. And he used to sing down the microphone, I Want My Pay. And it's just a little bit, it sounds daft now, but it was really groundbreaking at the time. Tell me about mixing. Well, mixing doesn't really come into it on the Northern Soul scene. I think it falls more into the Graham Park conversation than the one we're having, Chris, to be honest with you. Personally, I've tried. I'd love to be a mixer, but there's a real skill to it. And you can make yourself sound like a, a real idiot if you get it wrong. I'm not so sure it's a skill that you can teach anybody either. Yeah, I remember it's Greg Wilson, I think, on uh, an edition of Later With Jules, where he says you put one song on and then you bang on the next one. Greg Wilson, I worked with at quite a few all days in the 1980s, and he was one of the very first. The great thing, I think, with mixing is that before people realise it, there's another track coming in and you can get away with putting in something. I always remember he played a Culture Club record at one of our jazz funk all days. So in Northern Soul terms, it's about keeping the music going. Yes. But about an instinct too as to what you should play next. I've sometimes likened it to being a snooker player, actually where you've got to be thinking two or three songs ahead. And you can quite easily suss out the crowd as well. And if you know that the crowd are up for something a bit different, you can tailor your set for that as well. Of course, you always get the, <laughs> and it's just one of those things, you'll be getting your records together before you go out to DJ. Not been asked for that for ages. I won't bother taking it. Guaranteed, the first request you get is for that record, just the way it is. Back into the box and uh, for question four, here you go, my friend. Thank you, Chris. All right. Uh, this one. To date, when was your best moment at the decks? If we're talking about clubs, I would say it was a venue on the A6 called the Halfway House, which was in 1985, promoted with a radio station I worked for at the time, Red Rose. And I was able to a packed club once a month play what I would play on the radio to a full dance floor. Anita Baker, Luther Vandross, Whitney Houston when she was sort of just coming through. Records that weren't really what you would consider to be. Really? You play that in a club and they all danced? It was a fairly intimate place, only held about 150. But I knew that if I'd played that particular track on the radio during the last three weeks, they'd know it and they'd be straight on the dance floor. But that's so, a very different world. That's the FM radio world. It is. And uh, when I do gigs now... I'm much more up for playing a set which relates to what I play on the radio than just going back to playing the stomping sound of Northern Soul because, quite frankly, that doesn't excite me the same way. Is that right? I would play now in my last set. 
I'd play a record like uh, Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis, You Don't Have to Be a Star. I'd play Float On. I'd play Inner City Blues. I'd play Donny Hathaway, The Ghetto. That's where my head is now as far as DJing. And if I did ever start to DJ again in a sort of, you know, phone me up and book me, then that's what I would want to do. I see it as a point of difference for me because I'm not being dictated by a dance beat all the time. Does that, does that make sense? Are you saying that you would never want to go back to doing your traditional Northern Soul sets? Well, if I run to an event, I do a couple now in Blackpool, I will put myself on right at the very start because I want to play records to people coming in that want to listen I've paid my dues with filling dance floors. My job now, as I see it, and I see the radio now as being totally dominant in breaking music, by the way. I don't see nightclubs as doing it anymore, certainly not on the northern scene. If I'm doing a northern soul event, I will think, right, well, you know, they're not expecting me to pack the floor at midday till two. So let's play some records that I believe in that in three months' time, the main time DJs might be playing. So something like the Iquettes, what you're going to do would be a great example, which really didn't mean much to anybody two or three years ago, but it's now graduated from being a warm-up record where people are just getting their heads around it, getting to know it, to now being a record that everybody's after and it will be played at midnight. So it's like, that's my part to play now. How do you think being a DJ makes you feel? Oh, it's a feeling like no other. Certainly when you get that crowd with you and you get the nice comments and, and the radio as well. Feedback on the radio is absolutely everything. And when you, when you know that people appreciate what you do for them and create something for them, I mean, I was lucky enough to get that medal uh, a few years ago and that was for my efforts over the years for a variety of different reasons, not just DJing but working with record companies and bringing American acts in. And, you know, just to touch back on the question about the best time behind a microphone, probably when I was able to bring Patty Austin over to Blackpool four or five years ago to the Winter Gardens, having tried for 15 years to persuade a manager. She made these great records when she was 15. She's never, ever performed them. And she came and did a set for us that night, Chris, that was just unbelievable. You've talked so passionately about her. For anyone that doesn't know Patty's work, give me three song titles. Uh, well, certainly Baby Come To Me with James Ingram was, was her biggest hit here. Uh, but on the Northern Soul scene, I've given all my love and music to my heart. There's a whole raft. She did it so well. She worked with Snake Davis. She'd learned the songs. I don't think part of her really wanted to be there at all. It was just surreal. But when the audience responded to her, it wasn't just a, a clap. It was the second wave of a clap. I stood on the balcony just transfixed. Uh, right, there's one more for, yes. for you from the box. Okay, so let's pick Dig out in. your last one. There you are. Okay. All right, your fifth and final question from the box, Richard, is... Have you ever made a song famous? Well, the obvious one, I suppose, is uh, Gloria Jones's Tainted Love, which, going back to Philadelphia, on the first day I was there, I'd come out of this industrial-sized lift with a forklift truck with an empty pallet ready to find records, and on the floor in front of me was Gloria Jones's Tainted Love on the Champion label. No sleeve, just there. I knew the name Gloria Jones, didn't know that record. I thought, wow, that's not a bad start. So I brought it home to play it at Varvar's. I think it had been played before on the scene, but nobody had really stuck with it. So I'd been forever associated with that particular record. I'm even in Wikipedia for it. So obviously the record was then covered by Soft Cell, wasn't it, and went on to be a, a huge hit. So I suppose along with Frank Wilson's Do I Love You, they're the two biggest, I would say, of all time. I'm very honoured to have been associated with, uh, with one of them. 
What a legacy, Richard. Um, they were your five questions from the box, but I have got a handful more quick fires. All right, ready? Okay. Yeah. Wigan Casino had its f- famous three before eight. It did. I assume you can still name them in a flash. Of course I can. That would be... Uh, You've named one of them already. I, I have. Well, it would be Toby Legend, Time Will Pass You By, Dean Parrish, I'm On My Way, and Jimmy Radcliffe, Long After Tonight Is All Over. Can you name another favourite three in a row? I would certainly think for Northern Soul... If I had to do that, I would put together Bobby Sheen, Dr. Love, Dee Dee Sharp, What Kind of Lady, and Gene McDaniel's Walk with a Winner, which is a sublime ending record of a sort of big beat ballad nature. Who are your DJ heroes? Well, on the radio, Johnny Walker. In the clubs, I think Martin Ellis and probably Colin Curtis, I would say. Colin's had such a wide experience in music and pushes new music all the time. You're very much part of a family, aren't you? Yeah, I think so. I think we are. And I still keep in touch with most people these days. I've got one last question here for you, Richard. It's the end of the world, and you've got to play the last three records on Earth. What would those records be? Well, of course, I'll change my mind every day, almost by the hour on this one. But you've asked me a question, so let me pull three out now. The first one would be a wonderful Burt Bacharach song that was a number one for the Fifth Dimension in 1971 in America called One Less Bell to Answer. I'd go with Marvin Gaye's Inner City Blues because I just think it was so far ahead of its time and it sounds so wonderful now, it sounds so fresh now. And Donny Hathaway's The Ghetto, I can hardly believe, in 1969, he wrote that song and recorded that song. It's so far ahead of its time, it's unbelievable. And, of course, tragically, he jumped out of a hotel room four years later and a genius was gone forever. So there are three that I think, I hope I never have to, play before the world ends. I feel very privileged to have had this time with you, Richard, and thank you so thank much. You. Thanks for asking and me. What an absolute legend. Yeah. Richard Serling, and that was How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. <laughs>